Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This week, Samaya Keynes and I have a four-part conversation about trade deals with Professor Danny Roderick. Danny Roderick is the Ford Foundation Professor of International Political Economy at Harvard University. Here's part three of our conversation. Okay, so let's suppose we've designed the ultimate trade deal that deals with all these social dumping problems that doesn't include IP protection and doesn't have ISDS. Now we've got to go and sell this thing. Do you have any problems with the ways that economists have tried to sell trade deals in the past? Yes, I do. I mean, I think this this, this dawned on me when I, I there was this a few years back, this survey that the uh, that the Chicago Booth School ran among its experts. You know, they have these periodic surveys. They have a, this group of economic experts, and they ask them questions periodically about sort of, you know, uh, what do you think about this or that? And then one of these surveys was about trade. And then, you know, one question was about, you know, the general principle of fair trade, free trade. Do you think free trade is on balance good? Uh, and then predictably, you know, most everybody said yes. No surprise there. Uh, the second question was, uh, do you think on balance NAFTA is good, that particular trade agreement? And then pretty much almost everyone voted the same way, which was sort of, you know, um, that overwhelming majority said yes. And, and so this is a bit curious because, you know, NAFTA is a particular regulatory arrangement and uh, it is, it's got, I think, 9,000 pages or so. And I'm pretty sure that, that most of these people, economists, uh, who are not trade specialists who said NAFTA is a great thing. What the, the leap of faith that they, they were making was essentially NAFTA is a free trade agreement and therefore it's like free trade. And then since we like free trade, NAFTA is a good thing. Um, and, and I think everything that we've been discussing here, uh, uh, in this discussion suggests that that's, you know, maybe a, you know, bit too big a, a leap of faith. So in my, in my ideal world, I, I think um, you know that economists wouldn't feel the necessity to circle the, the wagons whenever there's a trade agreement, and and just hold their nose and say, oh, you know, I really don't like trips, and ISDS, I'm not so sure about, but boy, do I like free trade agreements, and then you know, so that we have to say this because otherwise, you know, we will be empowering the barbarians on the other side of the issue, the protectionists, and we better not do that. Um, and I think that's not very helpful. So one of the ways that economists who know slightly more about free trade deals than the general body of economists, one of the ways that they've tried to sell trade deals is to talk about the kind of the number of winners from these deals, uh, the number of extra jobs that might create, the you know the extra uh, opportunities they might might generate. And, you know, clearly when you're trying to pass a trade deal through Congress, you maybe are not so vocal about the disruption that might arise as, you know, as a result of these trade deals. You know, what, what would a more kind of honest sell of NAFTA back in the early 90s look like? I think the honest, you know, the honest sell for a trade agreement, a well-designed trade agreement, would be the one that is actually are the oldest defense of free trade, is the one that says free trade is just like technological change. You know, that was the argument that was made back in the mercantilist era, even before David Ricardo, before Adam Smith. The the earliest defense of free trade was that it's 
we don't object to technological change, even though some people might lose their jobs because technological change is something that increases the overall production possibilities. Trade is exactly the same. Uh, it increases production possibilities. And you cannot sweep under the rug the disruptions because without the disruption, you're not getting the gain. So the, 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 the job losses and the disruptions are the flip side of the coin. And I think this is where many economists, often in the public domain, have gotten very, very misleading, uh, is to sort of want to say, you know, trade is going to give us all these gains, but oh, but the un, you know temporary unemployment or the sectoral shocks or some of the income losses of the losers, we don't need to worry about because they're going to be relatively small. You can't have that. You know, you can't have in our world with the kind of sort of models that we work with. You cannot have very large gains, overall gains, without also having very large uh, distributional impacts. So I think the way to sell this is to say, look, you know. Trade creates disruptions in exactly the same way technological change does. We do a lot of things to ensure that the losers from technological change we take care of. We have safety blankets, we have retraining, we have social insurance, and we have rules about what kind of technological change is you know, acceptable, what kind isn't. You, know, you cannot torture people in lab in the, you know, in, in, you know, just to get better medicines. You, know, you have your rules about how you, you, you treat your you know, rats uh, or your lab animals. You know, these, all these regulations about how technological progress is, is uh, you know, under what conditions we allow it to take place, either because of its redistributive effects or because of our norms and values about what's okay to do in experiments and in innovation. Uh, it's exactly the same for trade, that it has to be embedded in a kind of both in safety nets and redistributive mechanisms to ensure that the losers are taken care of. But also they need to be embedded in a set of regulations that reflect, reflect our values about what's okay, what's procedurally fair, and what, you know, that, you know, ensure that trade takes place under conditions uh, that violate, that don't violate our norms of procedural fairness and distributive justice. And again, it's exactly the same with technology. So I think that's what we have to do: is 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 not you know be shy uh, about uh, the downsides and and be upfront about those and and be also upfront about what we're doing to to deal with them. So if we go back to the question of NAFTA in the mid 1990s and that discussion, or uh, China's entry into the WTO, which you know subsequently was a was a big trade shock for the United States, and there's a lot of empirical research that's tracing that to dislocation, the lack of adjustment. What's the underlying problem there in the solution? Is it the trade deal that's to blame for this? Is it the trade? How should we be thinking about this in in your mind? Who's who's really at fault? Yes, there's the issue of the economists not speaking out enough. But in terms of policy, what's the right policy response to deal with these kinds of questions? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the right answer depends on, you know, which shock we're talking about. So I think going back to the China shock, I think in the 1990s and, and, and 2000s, the U.S. had the option in principle of going the European way on trade. The European way on trade was that essentially Europe opened up to trade uh, much earlier, because partly because they are smaller countries, so more exposed to trade. U.S. really didn't become an open country until it really became confronted with trade with Mexico in the context of NAFTA, and then uh, China's entry into the WTO and China's growth. At that point, the road not taken for the United States was to essentially 
uh, do what Europe did, which is to erect um, the kind of, of welfare state and safety uh, nets uh, that were embedded in a kind of political compromise um, and therefore credible, um, not like TAA, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, underfunded, completely ineffective. Just so they um, trade, TAA's trade, trade adjustment systems? Right. If that path had been taken, I don't think trade with Mexico or China uh, would have become politically nearly as salient and have, have played the role that they did in the 2016 election. In Europe, the issue of trade with low-wage countries is a non-issue politically. Uh, it's not that trade agreements are are not politically salient, but there in Europe, the discussion is very different. In continental Europe, it's really about the rules. It's about ISDS. It's about product harmonization. But it's not about trade with China. And I think that's largely because the welfare state took care of that. In the United States, that's still very much a live issue because, uh, you know, the U.S. did not go uh, the European way. But that's in the 1990s and 2000s. And I think, you know, that, you know, sort of right now we're in a very different uh, situation. Uh, right now, the issue of compensation, I think it's, it's, time has gone and passed. You know, the U.S. is not going to erect a welfare state. I, I think any promise to be more effective, more generous with compensation is not going to work. There's an interesting empirical point here, which is that if you actually compute the amount of redistribution that would be required to compensate people, even at relatively minimal you know, excess burden of taxation to, for redistributive purposes, you exhaust the gains from these trade agreements very, very quickly, which is another way of saying that our trade agreements are largely redistributive. That is, they're, they're creating very little net gain, very little gains from trade relative to redistribution. And the redistribution is so much that if you really weren't serious about compensating the losers, you'd be exhausting the gains from trade very quickly under you know very moderate assumptions about excess burden. Therefore, both economically and politically, economically because the cost is too high, politically because of, of you know the lack of credibility, compensation is you know is not what's going to solve the problem here. Um, so therefore, the question about you know TPP or the trade agreements right now, I think we need to go back to the drawing board. And what I would say there is a you need breathing room. You need you know right now it's not even a fifth order priority for the United States to sign a TPP. I think there's a lot that needs to be done domestically. Let's not waste any political capital on international trade agreements. You know the world economy is open as it is. The challenge is not to make it more open. The challenge is to make sure that we have enough legitimacy and trust in the system that we don't go back to, you know, really a lot of protectionism. And the, the task there is going to be mostly doing the right things domestically. Trade agreements, trade deals are really, you know, our, our, our second or third degree of importance right now. So let's not put them uh, on, on, on our priority list. And secondly, when we get back to negotiating trade agreements, I think we, we frankly need to take another look at what is it that we're negotiating. Let's negotiate areas where there are real gains, not all the stuff where it's mostly redistributive of, of or creating and distributing rents. And uh, let's ensure that that you know that there are balanced trade deals where labor and consumer groups and society at large feel that they have a real stake in these things. That it's not just against special interests. So there's a lot of rethinking that needs to be done about these agreements too. But again, I'm saying. You know, I don't think this is where the really issue is right now. So is an accurate summary of, of your statements on this then that trade deals like NAFTA allowing 
China's entry into the WTO. They introduced shocks that had redistributive effects into the U.S. economy. But it's not the trade deal's fault that the United States didn't cope with this. It was the fault that we didn't simultaneously develop the complementary domestic policies, such as what Europe did when it opened up to trade to deal with these kinds of adjustment issues first. And then second, the path forward today, you're not optimistic that the United States is suddenly going to develop a broader social safety net than what it has currently. So you're not advocating for raising trade barriers above current levels of what they are right now. You're just saying, let's put a pause on this forward continued push on negotiating even more trade deals until we get our priorities straight. Maybe we can get the the broader redistributive mechanism, the social social safety net in place, and then we can restart that engine. Yes, largely, yes. I think the on the second second point, I largely agree the way you put it. On the first, whether it's a fault of trade or whether it's trade agreements or it's a fault of somewhere else, I mean, I don't draw the distinction you draw because, you know, it, the, the, it was clear when we were entering these trade agreements that there wasn't the political will or the domestic coalitions uh, or necessarily the, the effort to institute the domestic adjustments that were going to be required. So in that sense, yes, the trade agreements were the problem. And I think the way that they were sold were also the problem because I think all the downsides and the redistributive effects were minimized. And also, as you remember, by the economics profession, I mean, the economics profession took refuge for the longest time that our analyses, empirical analyses, didn't show large redistributive effects. And they didn't until after, you know, it turned out that you needed to unleash some labor economists and with some, you know, that actually differentiated about different spatial labor markets, introduce additional margins into the analysis to really pick up large distributive effects that were hidden from view to us because we were dealing things with two at, at two aggregate levels, simply distinguishing between skilled versus unskilled labor without looking at regional or spatial differences or different communities. So you're talking about the sort of Otterdorn and Hansen right. China shock right. line of research right. there. So you may not be a fan of how trade deals have been done in the past. Could you talk about what problems you have with the Trump administration's trade agenda? Trump's trade agenda, I think, is explicitly mercantilist. They look at trade essentially as a zero-sum thing. Uh, and for them, trade means, you know, just creating markets, uh, you know, outside for U.S. corporations, uh, giving in as little as possible on import liberalization, and to the extent possible, you know, do, uh, you know, ensure that the U.S. does as little as possible while other countries do the most. So I think, you know, there's nothing to like about this kind of, of mercantilist uh, trade agreement because it's, you know, it, it's not sustainable. That's not where the gains are going to be. And, and uh, it has really nothing to recommend itself, especially since we know that Trump's objective is not really to improve, improve the well-being of, of uh, workers uh, in the United States. Because if it were, you know, he has a lot of chances to, chance, chance to do things domestically uh, with his tax policy, with his infrastructure policy, with his you know, policies on, on domestic regulations and health insurance. That is not just not doing, is completely going in the opposite direction. So uh, we know that that's not you know, his intentions are not to improve the well-being of the average uh, American uh, uh, worker and family. And his, and his trade agreements are simply just completely out of the mercantilist playbook. And so there's, I find nothing to, uh, to, uh, to like about it. 
Wonderful. Economists, the Trump administration, we've, uh, we're, un- we're unhappy with a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Danny, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Danny. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Good to talk to you both. And thanks also to the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. Thanks to them for hosting a conference that brought the three of us together. As usual, if you have any comments or feedback, then do get in touch. On Twitter, I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. That's because a two-handed economist always beats a one-handed economist.